and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. My guest today is someone with a very interesting background. He previously worked in finance, first as a regulator, then on the sell side as a derivatives trader, and finally on the buy side as a hedge fund equity analyst. At one point, he was making over $350,000 a year before burning out and deciding to pivot towards tech. He learned to code with Free Code Camp and Full Stack Academy, and since then has worked at Netlify and now AWS. He's a prolific blogger and recently released the excellent coding career handbook. Please welcome the man with the best scroll bars on the internet, Swix, <laughs> aka Sean Wang. Sean, Yay. thank you for thank being you. here. Thank you so much for having me. That was an amazing intro. You really did your research. Yeah, I figured that there's so many podcasts out there that you have to differentiate yourself. And for me, it's the really diving deep. I normally start with the question of, how you got into CS, but that's all explained in the episode that you did on Free Code Camp. So instead, I found this interesting tidbit that I just have to ask you about. Why were you in Cuba and why did they think you were a spy? Oh, yeah, that was a really random trip. So I went to college in the US and a friend of mine was really into sort of everything Latin American, uh, Spanish and all that good stuff. And he was like, Freshman year, spring break, I want to go to Cuba. And back then it wasn't technically legal. I'm still not sure if it's legal. I think it is. But basically, because it was illegal, it was even more cool. So anyway, there were four of us, so we just went to Cuba. Basically, all you do to make it not legal is you hop with an intermediate location in between. Get there, sat down at a restaurant to have our food on on getting there, and then turn around and find that my luggage was gone. And my passport was in it. So I ended up getting stuck there for a month. I didn't have very good Spanish. I didn't have a lot of currency with me. Learning how to survive on like $1 hamburguesas a day. (laughs) And then, you know, having to report my issue with the authorities in Cuba, you know, it's very suspicious of people who come in and don't have documents. And fortunately, I think because I'm Asian, I don't fit the profile, but... I did say I was from the U.S. So they were like, we think you could be a spy. We have to check. So 
they detained me in, it wasn't like a jail, but it was a detention center thing until they could figure out I was just a very unlucky tourist. I'm a Singapore citizen. There was no embassy in Singapore as well. So we had to like get someone from, I think, Mexico to vouch that I'm a citizen. Because I, I didn't have a visa to go back to the US, they arranged the flight for me to go from Cuba halfway around the world to Singapore just to get my life back in order. <laughs> wow, what a crazy experience. I spend a lot of time walking on the Malecon, which is the seawall that is pretty famous in Havana. And it was 90 miles from Havana to the southern tip of Florida. And I spent a lot of time looking at that. You, you can see the U.S. <laughs> from there, right? And you can get in that mentality of, yeah, there are a lot of Cubans. Their, their families are separated and they stare across that sea body of water. If they can make it across, they can become naturalized citizen, I think. There's this rule about you have to get your feet on dry land. But if you get caught in the middle, you, they send you right back to Cuba. So I spent a lot of time looking at that 90 miles and thinking like, could I make that swim? <laughs> <laughs> really super random. Like it's got nothing to do with the rest of my life, but uh, <laughs> it's a fun fact. <laughs> to, to bring it back to more relevant things, I want to start with by thanking you because you really are one of the reasons why I started this podcast. A bunch of things like happened at the same time that just made it make sense for me to start doing these, for lack of a better term, career conversations over over Zoom and start to release them. So first off, thank you for being so generous with sharing your ideas. And the question is, you have the idea of learning in public. How did you start to develop that? I know that you were the first one to coin the term. And when you started, no? Okay, well, nope. when you first started Free Code Camp, I know that you'd started a blog about your journey. What made you yeah. do that? And did you have any idea of what that would snowball into? Oh, okay. So two kind of related questions. And the second one, I don't know the answer to. So the first one, I don't think I was very clear about this when I started. And so I kind of regret that a little bit. It's not something I created. So it's not mine, which is good because I want people to make it their own. And you don't have to mention me at all. It's just a good idea, right? I, like, you know, like cups are a good idea. Who made cups? I don't know. <laughs> I got it from Kelsey Hightower, who is Mr. Kubernetes at Google. And I'm sure he got it from somewhere else. So it's just a good thing to do. And I feel like I fumbled that a little bit when I shared this. If it's too closely associated with me, then people that, who don't like me are not going to share it. And that's bad. So I want to be very clear that it's not mine. Obviously, I'm very loud and vocal about it because it's benefited me. And uh, benefited a lot of people. So uh, yeah, I, and, and you know, starting a podcast is a really good way of doing it, which is pretty funny because I don't have a podcast. I kind of don't like my own voice. You used to have also though, like right? it's a lot of work. I did for for the bootcamp. Yes, it's just a lot of work editing, and I just got tired of editing. <laughs> I'd rather be a guest on other people's podcasts. <laughs> um, and then, but uh, that's a separate question because I didn't have any of that when I was going through free code camp. Just kind of being on my own, just blogging stuff. And I think the inspiration for that one, I, I actually wrote a post about this called No Zero Days. That was, that came from a random Reddit post that was very inspirational. You know, if you want to do something big and it seems so massive that it uh, seems so intimidating to you, 
you got to just like make it a daily commitment and commit to yourself that you'll do something about it every day. 10 days from now, you'll have done 10 days worth of baby steps and a hundred days from now you have done a hundred days worth. And eventually you look back and you, you'll go like, wow, like actually I went really far without really planning it. The only thing you commit to is every day you do something. So I needed a commitment device and uh, the blog was my commitment device. I wanted a green on GitHub every day. Oh, very interesting. And I really love the sentiment of the no zero days. One of my favorite quotes is think big, act small, and trust the dominoes will fall. That's from the one thing. And it, it really is such a powerful idea of making tiny steps towards your goal. And then at the end, being able to see that grand vision, even though you were just focused on such a tiny part at the start. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll be being honest. Like I didn't have a, I didn't have a clear goal. I, I, I knew the general direction and I didn't have like a and signpost, like be, you know, developer advocate at AWS today. It was just, that's just where it rolled out. But I knew that the general direction was right. And then I just made small steps every day. And I think this philosophy, you know, anyone listening who wants to learn more about it, definitely go read that post. It, it was more than just coding. If you want to, you know, go to the gym more, make a commitment that every day you'll, you'll set foot in the gym. That's it. Put on shoes, get in the gym and you're done. You can, you can leave. But it, it makes it such a small thing that you're like, okay, come on, I can do more than that, right? It's kind of like playing a trick on yourself, saying like, you're scared of big commitments. Fine. Make a small commitment on the days that you're feeling it. Go for, go for more on days you're not feeling it. The only thing you're looking to do is to not break the chain. Yeah, that's great. And I don't want to stay on the topic of learning in public and no zero days (laughs) for too long because it's, uh, it's well covered by your blog post that you put out for free as the, as that free chapter and also by other talks and podcasts. But I do want to highlight one quote that I especially love, which is, you can learn so much on the internet for the low, low price of your ego. Do you think that the ego is what prevents most people from doing this? People have a lot of reasons why they don't choose to uh, put out more stuff in public. Like a lot of people are just lazy, you know, that's a, that's a legit reason. But I think people who hear about this idea and hesitate a lot, put a lot of ego in their work. And I, I think it's more like I'm speaking to myself. I have a lot of ego in my work and I'm not perfect at this and I'm trying, you know, there are two dimensions that I want to stress about this. So one is that if you have a lot of ego in your work, then you want it to be perfect and taking, making things perfect takes a lot of time and then you end up not shipping. So I know so many people who have projects that they never ship because it's not good enough yet. They they have blog posts they never finish because it's not good enough yet. You repeat that enough, you build up this internal identity of a person who doesn't finish things. And that's just terrible. And guess what? It's just your ego that's standing in the way. Get it out there and then then iterate. The other thing that I say this phrase for is to get people to stop worrying about critics. Because when you put stuff out there, it will suck. Like, let's face it. You're your beginning creator. You will suck. People will hate you. People will correct you. People won't be nice about it. Some will be, most will be nice. Let me, let me be clear about that. Most people are very nice. There's some people who are very annoying and very principled or picky or high standards, whatever you call it. They don't see any reason to be nice to you. If you have a high ego in your work, you'll take that personally. But if you have a low ego, 
you'll be like, okay, this person is not being very nice, but they're still trying to tell me something I can learn from. And so if you have a low ego, if you know ego, you're basically Teflon to any criticism because they're not criticizing you. They're not criticizing your work and your work can always be better. That's the one thing you agree on with them. So yeah, have a small ego. I like how you really highlighted that point of even in the people who are being really mean and nasty, they have something that there is a sentiment there that at one point is true for them at least. And I really wish I I knew this four years ago because when I was first going through my journey of learning computer science and machine learning, I had a blog where I learned in public essentially, but I couldn't deal with the the lack of feedback because it just wasn't getting out there. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah. That too. And yeah. The only at first you'll you'll have no feedback. And if you have a lot of ego, you'll be you'll be very hurt. Like it's like what no one no one cares about what I say. Yeah. And the only <laughs> comments that I would get were things like, why did you write this? Like who's this for? Something stuff like that. So I turned off the comments. And that's even worse because you don't even know then if anyone is reading it. But I wish I knew about your concept of pick up what they put down so that we could kind of solve this cold start problem. Can you kind of talk about that? It's so simple, right? I feel dumb even like saying it's a thing because it's like, there's no fundamental insight here. (laughs) It's just, if you want to guarantee feedback, pick up what they put down and and they meaning the people that you want to learn from. And you'll be surprised how well this works, even at the top rungs of your field. So I don't know anything about machine learning, but like Francois, Francois Chalet or like Andre Karpathy, right? And people like give their left kidney to work with that guy. When he puts out a new piece of work, most people uh, will just kind of read it and they'll be like, all right, smart guy, move on. He actually wants feedback. He wants feedback. He wants collaborators. He wants people to double check his work. He wants people to riff off of it and go like, okay, he open sourced this new thing. He's always open sourcing stuff. He's amazing. but no one takes it and then does more. It's just, it's just always him. And I think if you, if you talk to creators at the top of their fields, they always feel very lonely because people kind of put them on a pedestal. Don't really, you know, in, engage. And that's fine. I tell you, I tell you, there's a very good reason why that happens is because most people have other stuff going on. Most people have real jobs. Most people have like other commitments that they, that they need to attend to. But if you have some free t- spare time and you want to engage with, you know, people at the top of your fields pick up what they put down, like any talk, any blog post, any library, any whatever. And guess what? Like you're virtually guaranteed feedback because there are just not that many people doing it. And it's the implicit contracts, right? Like I put out something, if people f- give me feedback on it and I ignore it, then I look like the bad guy and I don't want to be the bad guy. Um, so, so that's the basic strategy, right? If you're tired of putting out stuff and no one reading it, it's because you're putting out stuff that only you are interested in have some mutual exchange of value, have some sort of, uh, you're kind of doing free work for other people. Yes. A little bit, but it's free work that you're interested in anyway. And you get the collaboration of top people in the field that you cannot pay for. I got my code reviewed by the react core team. I got my typescript cheat sheet reviewed by the typescript core team. I didn't pay a cent. I learned a shit ton from that. And I'm contributing something of value by being a beginner. It's funny because like you, you often don't think you have any value to give these people at the top of their fields. They're looking for you. 
people aren't trained on how to be good collaborators. And I think pick up what they put down is kind of like step one in, in doing that. And it's very, very quick from being a good collaborator to becoming a friend and then becoming a peer. And like you said, it's so, it's so simple, but yet no one does it. <laughs> and the, the only thing that you really have to lose is, like you said, potentially getting bad feedback and it hurting your ego. But even that continues to make you better because when you have that low ego, you're anti-fragile to the suggestions that people make, even if it's extremely harsh. Oh, yeah. And yeah. because we're both finance nerds, or you formally, I guess, one of the things that I like to think about this as uh, learning in public, that is, it's like non-recourse leverage on your career because you can have these massive benefits all for the low price of just suppressing your ego and putting in that time and effort. Yeah, I like that. So I was the options trader, so I, I call it the call option on all your work. And the great thing about those is if you can keep those on your books with low carry, then eventually one of those is <laughs> going to pay off and your career is just going to skyrocket. So I really love that idea. Yeah, yeah. You should totally like fill your portfolio with a bunch of call options, right? I don't, I don't know what the carry is. Carry is like maybe, you know, maintaining it on your site and like making it easily accessible and then bringing it up every now and then. But like, that's nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so now I want to pivot more towards the career strategy portion of your book, because I think that's something that, at least in your other interviews, seems mm -hmm. to have been under-discussed. Yeah. Wow, you're really good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well done. And yes. specifically, you have such a good perspective on this because you were an equity analyst at a hedge fund. So you were looking at these companies <laughs> from, from the business point of view. So at a high level, how can we get better at thinking strategically about our careers? So there's, I think the micro and the macro, the micro meaning you want to optimize for within your company. So I talk a lot about studying engineering career ladders and understanding what companies value. Surprise, you know, fun fact, most career ladders only have 25% of their evaluation criteria on technical stuff. It's the other to 75%, which is non-technical that, that people have to think about. And really, you know, there's not enough content on that. So that's the micro stuff and, you know, playing within the game that people set up for you. And then the macro stuff is kind of skating to where the puck is going rather than where it was. So observing strategic trends, uh, mega trends, I kind of call them, and you know, consciously shaping your life so that you will be aligned to things which are very likely to be more, much more important in your future. Whereas if you constantly talk to people who are already successful, they'll just tell you what worked for the past generation. So it tends to be a, a mistake that a lot of people make, a lot of mistake that I made, to be quite honest, in, in finance, which is uh, you do the things that worked for, for other people and you don't question how the rules are changing as they change. And in, in tech, the rules change a lot. So I think that's like the, you know, two point, two bullet point summary of the whole thing. But I definitely squeezed a lot in there. And it's definitely one where I don't feel like I did a good enough job, to be quite honest with in the book. It's a huge topic and I squeezed it into nine chapters and, <laughs> you know, like career strategy is a whole field and, uh, and uh, it's very hard to, to discuss. But yeah, uh, the, the micro and the macro. It's interesting that you say that you don't feel like you did a good enough job, but it, like you said, it's such a, 
such a broad field. And if you're only trying to cover one part of your book, it's uh, you, you did do a good job of making it really dense and having so many different links that people can go to to explore yeah. other things. But to dive deeper into this mega trends idea, I want to connect that to your earlier chapter on betting on technologies. And I really like yeah. the terminology of using the word bet because it is a risk and you could and you will uh, get rewarded if you choose the right technologies to bet on. So yep. how do you personally stay in the flow of new technologies and what's kind of the signal to jump on the bandwagon? This is an important question. I feel like I give a different answer every time, which is not, not that great. No, I, I think I'm converging on a, on a correct answer, which is, hey, machine learning, right? <laughs> but side note, I think there's a, one of my theses that I haven't written about, but I'm still developing is that a lot of the hyperparameters that we evolved to have in machine learning, we can actually apply to human learning. And in fact, because machine learning is a much more formalized study of learning, we are better at machine learning than we are at human learning. We should bring stuff over. Anyway, how do I, how do I, how do I keep in touch? Okay, so obviously the sort of social media is, is, is a big part of most people's lives. So Twitter and Hacker News, I think, are sort of basic background radiation in terms of things where things that can cause mutations in, in my own thinking. I think then you sort of step it up in terms of, all right, what are the major projects in your, in your field? Who are the major creators? What are they working on today? What did they work on in the past? Did some people leave the projects? What are they working on now? And you sort of follow the graph. It's like a DAG of prime movers in the industry. There are a lot of people who are not prime movers and they just kind of follow whatever the, the, the trend is. So all their opinions are worthless. And it's the people who are independent thinkers, which, of, of which they're a small set, which you can actually follow pretty easily because they make themselves quite obvious. So that's, that's a good thing. And then the, I think the other thing to take note of is in conferences, I think conferences are where developers get together and organizers and developers alike and speakers basically bubble up this kind of zeitgeist of what's hot and cool. And you can just pay attention to like the topic, the, the talk titles and get a sense of what people want. And I think that's a, that's a good metric as well. There's always this tension between trying to like live in the future and like just going for the thing that is just obviously going to be the best, best thing in the world. And then the other side of it is starting from where people are currently at and then just going one step better. Because if you go too far ahead, I think like Haskell is one example where like this language is like really clearly superior, but nobody knows it. And the learning curve is just too high. So it failed because it's unpopular. Whereas, you know, in, in my world, TypeScript was just a little bit better than TypeScript uh, than JavaScript. And so now it's like, uh, you know, gotten 80% adoption among all of JavaScript, which is massive because it is, it's just that one step better that people can incrementally adopt to. So as someone who bets on technologies, you don't, you don't want to bet too far, but you also, but you also want to bet slightly ahead of the curve. So I think in, in the book, I talk a little bit about being at that point where you cross the chasm and ideally and that's a lot of what I do, which is once you, you know, you, you, you can, you can hopefully spot things that cross the chasm, then you specialize in being the, the prime mover in moving things to cross the chasm so that technologies cross the chasm because of you. And, and in that sense, you know, that phrase, like the best way to, to predict the future is to create it. You're helping to bring about the, the future that you bet on, which improves your sort of hit rates on betting in the first place which seems like a good career strategy thing in the abstract. Um, very hard to do in practice, obviously, but it seems to make sense. 
Yeah, and one of the one of the hardest parts about this idea of betting on new technologies is figuring out how to balance between learning more of what you already know and really trying to get really good at that versus versus betting on those new technologies. How do you kind of think about and try and balance the time you spend between the two? I'll be honest, I, I don't have it figured out yet. So what I, what I try to think about, what I try to say is that you should have basically a minimum spending set of tools to do anything that you need. In terms of tech choice, right? you, you got to know what you want to do and then you got to figure out the, the tools to help you get there. Get very good at them so you are very capable. And then you're free to experiment with whatever the hell you want. But I think a lot of people who feel overwhelmed are just seeing new, new tools coming out every day and don't have a framework in which to slot them in. And furthermore, if they're too focused on new tools, then their core capability is being compromised because they don't know their own tools well enough. They're just like always trying out the new thing. And you're always, you're always stuck in like what I call tutorial hell. Like you're just doing hello world and every, every single possible framework. And that sucks. No one wants, no one wants to do that. So, so yeah, get good. There's a chapter on specialists versus generalists. Specialize in those tools, which, which seem to make sense, which give you that minimum spending set of capabilities. And then I, I also introduced this idea of innovation credits in every project that you do. Because you're secure in the rest of your tech stack, you can swap out one of them with something new that comes along, which seems to make sense. Um, so that's how like a lot of professional people do it. In terms of like personal projects and open source, yeah, go nuts. Like <laughs> try a totally new thing, uh, doesn't matter. And then I think, you know, it's a, it's a judgment on when a toy becomes much more than a toy. And it it's definitely depends on like things like community, things like whether you believe in the, the founder, the, the values also really matter. Like when, it, when speed versus security becomes a trade-off, do you pick speed or do you pick security? And there are projects that can equally argue for both. And if you fundamentally dis- disagree with the project on values, then you're just going to eventually end up hating it. So don't pick those. So like try to be explicit about those. Try to, try to interrogate the, the people who maintain it or just like observe these values play out in, in actions because sometimes the things that people say differ from what they do, actually do. And only what they do is met, actually matters. I think I link to some of these in the book, but like, for example, like C has a list of like goals and non-goals. Almost every project that you, that you read, you know, you, I wish that they publish their goals and non-goals. So you could very, be, be very clear, like, okay, I want this. They, they've said this is a non-goal. Therefore, the entire project is just off limits for me because like, there's no point. The part about values is extremely interesting, and I think we can later on in the interview connect that to talking about company cultures and how to figure out what's right for you. But to continue on the thread of figuring out what kind of technologies to bet on and what skills to develop, I really like the dichotomy that you make between whether or not this is a project for if you're doing it for work and it needs to work versus having more of the opportunity to explore with those side projects. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a whole chapter on side projects and why they're a good idea. Nothing new and, and insightful there, but having breakable toys is very good for having sort of non-trivial use cases for technology. So you can plug them in and see, see how they feel. And you said that very briefly in you know, the first part of the answer, you had said you don't want to get stuck in tutorial hell. And I really liked the advice that you give about how reading technical books cover to cover is 
extremely underrated. Yeah. What is your process for selecting which technical book to read mm. and how, how, what's your process for assimilating that knowledge into practical skills that you can use in your work? Honestly, like there's just so many good books out there that it's difficult. So I think the process is probably you start with what you actually feel like you really need to get better at. So start from your needs rather than what you feel other people want out of you. And then it's pretty, usually pretty obvious what's the, what the book, the best book to get is like, just ask people, look for the best recommendation. These days, it's a lot of like people that I know. <laughs> so I read their books just because they're friends. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not sure if like I, I have the best answer anymore on that. So a lot of book reading for sure is just in case learning, which I don't like as much as, as just in time learning. But some, some amount of it is important because that's how you go from intermediate, uh, I guess from beginner to intermediate or like intermediate to advanced. Like the intermediate person should do this because beginners, you know, I, I think you know this, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. Like beginners just want like the getting started, the hello world, quickest way to give, go from A to B. Advanced people only need to know the diffs, the change logs. Uh, it's the intermediates that like kind of know everything, but then like they have holes and a lot of people are fine with that. And I think if you want to level up and actually know the, the tech, then you have to cover everything. And the only, the only way to cover everything sort of comprehensively and in depth is usually in a book because it, it, a lot of authors essentially condense years and years of experience down for you in, in a book. And it's just a matter of you to make, making the time to, to read it. It's not easy. I'm still struggling with it. You know, so a, a lot of these, like, I think when people see that I write these kind of advice, they think I'm practicing it every day. I'm not like I, you know, I struggle with it too. I'm, I'm a regular person just like everyone else. Yeah. You have a quote in the book about how most of your coding heroes are, walk, are walking flaws who have just maximized one or two strengths. And so that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that jives exactly with what you just said right there. And the distinction between, uh, just in case and just in time. So that's a, that's a theory of constraints concept. Where did you first learn about system thinking, theory of constraints, and how do you think about that in terms of where it applies in helping you code better or create a better strategy for your career? I'll be honest, you'll, you'll notice that most of the book doesn't explicitly mention systems thinking. I don't think I even mentioned theory of constraints. Basically because I don't feel like I'm very well educated on that. I do have one section on, on systems thinking, but I think I was probably introduced to it from a podcast that mentioned Donella Meadows. Uh, I think I have her book right here, like Thinking Systems. And that put into words something that I was kind of, kind of casually observing, but didn't really have a framework for. And she was, she was just like, I don't know if you know this, but apparently she like just went to a whiteboard one day and like a bunch of people were discussing all sorts of random things at different levels of abstract abstraction. And she was like, sit down, shut up. And she's like wrote the 12 leverage points. And then you're like, all right, which level are we at? And it was just so clear. And, and, uh, and apparently she just like had it in her, her head. She just never wrote it down. Anyway, it's pretty funny. Cause like that was the club of Rome, which was kind of a, a group of world experts. These are just like regular idiots. Like these are like world experts getting schooled on how to think, which is just cool. <laughs> um, to zoom back in from that super high 60,000 foot level concept discussion, the core idea of that you should study just in time 
versus just in case. It makes a lot of sense to me. So I, that's the one I, I, I focus on. So there's an entire fifth section of the book that I did not write, wow. that I planned. And just in case is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> Are you planning on writing that at some point? Yeah, V2. Yeah. So one worry of mine is that the book is too long. So I kind of want to focus on basically having the size of the book, like really snipping all the fat. There is some fat, right? Um, snipping all the fat, make it shorter, make it more digestible. And then I'll add the fifth category. I, I'm not, I'm in no rush. So recently, I don't know if uh, you saw on Twitter, I wrote one of the missing chapters, which is how to create luck. It's this idea of that luck can be intentionally expanded and generated by increasing your luck surface area. And then we also talk about the, the four kinds of luck that, that people study. So, so the fifth section was concepts and it's, it's not in there, but I think the, the book is an ongoing project. You know, this is just, I wrote this in two months. I'm still comparatively a nobody. I, I think if I write a new version every year, in 10 years, it will be the book. But I only get there by writing a new version every year. Yeah, it's a very interesting way of approaching a book. First, because having it in the native ebook format instead of as a, as a hardcover, you can really send those updates out more often yeah. <laughs> than, than you could otherwise. And it takes advantage of one of the one of the core themes in, in systems thinking, which is having those positive feedback loops. And if you have one of those, as if you can iterate faster and faster, then it's just going to get exponentially better. Yeah, I kind of think of this as like a digital native idea, which is there are fourteen hundred links to to raw source material in the book, and this was a conscious decision. I actually weighed at taking those all those out and it's like putting footnotes and stuff like that traditionally. Then I realized that no, like I want this to be a digital reading experience and I want people to learn for themselves. You know, if they would disagree with me, fine. You know, I, I give them the materials that, that I used to come up with all this stuff. So, so yeah, it also is a defense mechanism, you know, in the sense that a lot of people uh, may not trust my word, but they may trust the word of someone extremely senior. And so I, if I link to the source, then I, I can say I am kind of borrowing the credibility of that person. The, the digital format, the, the constant updates, I think there, there's a bunch of innovations that can be done with eBooks that maybe I'm you know, trying out in, in my own little way. Having a community of people to read the book with, I think is, is valuable. You know, most books are read in silence and, and, and alone. So I'm trying to you know, make that an active part of the, the book's value proposition. But then also, obviously, as an author, I can listen to that and then incorporate it in, in future versions. So that's, that's very good. And everyone, and everyone gets lifetime updates, right? Yeah. So they, they feel like a part of the process. Yeah, the community building part of that is really interesting to me because that's one of my goals for this project as well. And you also have extensive experience with moderating a community, but I don't want to get to that yet because that's a whole discussion in and of sure. itself. And so we've, we've run over pretty extensively your thoughts on depending on new technologies and how to learn them specifically. But now transitioning more towards choosing a company to work for you recently hmm. started at aws and if you're willing to go into yeah. it can you share about how the things you talk about in the strategy section came into your decision to make that move oh that's a that's awesome that's an awesome question even more awesome than you know because i've actually recently been dealing with uh, this exact question because there's another company that wanted me to work with them and uh, i've been like right now, 
deciding whether I want to go with them or not. But the move to AWS was pretty simple. It is the predominant cloud of our time. I expect it to outlive me. And I think a lot of, they're the bar to beat. Like most startups, they want to compete with AWS in some way, especially in the cloud. I think in terms of how it fits in, in, in the overall plan, this is more like a Lindy compounding thing because I expect it to, to last forever. That makes the time that I spend on it very valuable for the rest of my career. Like it won't decay right away. So that's a, that's a good uh, thing to have. And it's also something that people fundamentally want to know. I see people leaving AWS and, and essentially like selling their expertise, whether through consulting or a book or whatever, like people just snap that up. They, they eat that up. They, it's, it's something that it's in demand and uh, being a, being ex AWS is, is a, it's a pretty good step. I also, you know, I think that it's a very w- well run company. And to the extent that I want to run a company myself in the future, uh, I want to see how it's run like the most, probably the biggest company in the world right now. I'm not sure, but you know, one of the big, one of the most biggest, most successful companies, they have very strong opinions, like the two pizza team rule, the thing about no, no slide decks. Like we will start a meeting and the first 10 minutes of that meeting are spent in complete silence. Everyone's on the zoom and we're all just reading the document we're supposed to read before the meeting. But because no one does that, Amazon just acknowledges it and just like, let's, let's just set aside time at the start of the meeting so that everyone just reads the damn thing. And yeah, it works, man. It works. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, like st- stuff like that, they have very unique culture, which like clearly works for them. So I wanted to learn it. It, it really does not get you know harder than that. The nice part about it as well is that they doubled my pay, which is very, uh, very fang to <laughs> do. So it was seriously not a hard decision. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Amazon's culture, I myself did two internships there. And I would say that that was for sure where I learned the best engineering practices. They just seem to have nailed down the, the processes, yeah. like almost to a science. And it's incredible that at a company that large, that the leadership principles they have were able to make their way throughout it. I mean, you'll regularly hear people saying, oh, disagree and commit. Oh, dive deep into this. And work backwards. Yeah. Yeah. You said that you greatly admire one of the things that Bezos had said on stage where he expressed the sentiment that it's not interesting what's going to change in the near future. It's more interesting to think about Mm. what's not going to change. So Mm -hmm. Are there things that you think aren't going to change in tech? It's kind of the same thing as, as what, so he, he was talking about consumer expectations, but I think he, it's kind of the same thing as, as developers are also a form of consumer. So we always want things to be faster. We always want things to be simpler, like have, have less configuration and, and sort of more out of more good defaults out of the box. So I, I'm personally very focused on that. Yeah. So uh, yes, there, there are things that are not going to change in tech and it's generally the same things that we want as consumers, you know, and I think developers as, as humans, like we, we care about good defaults. Like we care about, uh, even, even backend developers want good UI and I'm a sort of front end focused person. I can see the the principles of human computer interaction, which is, you know, a formal field that I kind of study. I mean, I, (laughs) I don't, I don't specialize in it, but like, I see this again and again, like Fitz law, like, you know, go to laws of These are just things which humans want out of machines and they will not change. 
and just like just ship just deliver them better and better and better and you're you're fine um i think there are there are trends within that so for example right now privacy focused version of anything is a good good idea like duckduckgo is growing at 50% year wow. on year at some point they may over they may eclipse google which is amazing wow. but privacy focused versions of analytics privacy focused versions of email so these are trends within the general category of like people want to to have more control the general principle that people want more control and one more sort of identity or autonomy or agency whatever you call it that doesn't change uh, it, the way that you ship it does and that's part of the broader discussion of how amazon was able to become the behemoth of it was because it was able to take advantage of the new trend of the internet and then also provide people with those things that they're always going to want pretty much no matter what yeah. I mean, think about it, right? Like Amazon started with like S3, EC2, SQS, I think. And then like basically everything else that, that Amazon ships since then is just slightly easier to slightly easier versions to versions of those things, of those core primitives. I, I linked to this in the book, but it's a very, very long article. So I don't know <laughs> if you read it. Uh, it's called Invisible Asymptotes from Eugene Wei. Eugene Wei used to work at Hulu, obviously Amazon. And then I think he went to Oculus and then now he's kind of independent. But it's a very good analysis of how to practically apply this idea that things that don't change are the things that you should invest in to a bunch of different social, like dominant companies of our day. I know exactly where in the book you've linked it, but it's, it's I, I, haven't, yeah. uh, I haven't gotten around to reading it. So I'll definitely... He's got two posts that are basically category defining. Uh, it's that one. And then the uh, status as a service one. It's, it's just like, you read it and you're like, okay, like this is just right. <laughs> <laughs> And I think you have a, because you came from that more analyst business background, you have a better sense of uh, what's relevant in terms of these business models and how they've changed over time. You mentioned value change, commoditizing the complement, hype cycles, aggregators. Yeah, in that section. Yeah, that that chapter was really hard to write, by the way. (laughs) Uh, And, and, you know, that that one's also available free. I, I felt I had mixed feelings like releasing that because that was basically a book of this is everything that people know about tech strategy. And I thought it, I thought it was like one of my better chapters, to be honest, but people don't value strategy. Developers don't value strategy. So yeah, I, I really liked your summarization of the concepts that uh, Ben Thompson developed with aggregators because I've never, when I try to explain it to people, it comes out much worse than uh, what you wrote in the section of your book much yeah. more concise. So I highly recommend people check that out. Yeah. So he, on his own site, he doesn't even have as good an explanation as this one. I like read every post and I was like, all right, how do I, how do I, how do I like explain this in that, that it doesn't take up a whole book? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, th- uh, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I, I did work hard on that one. I have to wrap up some rapid fire questions. The questions themselves are okay. rapid fire, but your answer doesn't necessarily have to be Okay. You've mentioned that you burned out twice previously, once at the end of your finance career and then once while trying to learn to code. What do you do now mm-hmm. to prevent that in the future? That's a good question. I might, uh, you know, I might be headed for a burnout and not know about it. I think right now I'm just like very chill with what I want to do. Like I don't need success right away. I feel like I, I have a sustainable rhythm of things that I do on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that seem to work. And I think 
not and and then having a healthy balance beyond that like you know exercise time with family which i like spend you know a, a decent chunk of the day on i think that's that's really good like it's not all about work it's not all about tech and yeah i mean that's that's definitely a message i try to end the book with like it's the whole book is focused on like career 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 but at the end of the day like when people you know in their last final dying moments they don't think about that the career stuff like they think about their loved ones their their family and and the they think a little bit about career, like the their the biggest achievements, the hardest challenges, but it's not the ping pong tables. It's not mm-hmm. the, you know, the snacks in the fridge. So try to take it easy and also, you know, enjoy life as, as it, as it passes by. Yeah, exactly. And that's a sentiment that I, I, I really cannot stress more. <laughs> Next is you pulled from such a wide range of sources to write this book. Yeah. Out of those, which do you recommend most to other people? Damn. <laughs> what? <laughs> what kind of question is that? Uh, they're, they're all good. Like you know, they wouldn't be in there. <laughs> uh, it depends on what you already know. Cause if you didn't know about why software is eating the world, then yes, put down everything, stop what you're doing, go read that. As a software engineer, you should know why your field is succeeding. But like, you know, 70% of software engineers already know this cause I surveyed them. So then it's all about like, okay, do you know about learning public? No, then go read that and and like see that this is real and this is this is something that you can do. And then again, most people who follow me know that. So then it's more, then it's more about like you know specific skills, the idea about sparking joy, open sourcing your knowledge, uh, trends. There's a lot of links in there, so it's it's hard to pick a favorite. I did pick a few though, you know, that Mark and Jason essay, but then also that Eugene Wei essay. I think those are pretty formative. I guess I'll have to get back to you on like, which is my favorite. <laughs> it, it's very audience dependent, I think. For sure, for sure. And the second to last one is knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself when you first started learning to code? Does learning public count or is that too easy? No, that actually is fine. It, just to stress the point even more. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, so uh, the whole reason I wrote that in the first place was I was going back to give a graduation speech for my boot camp. And I was like, what advice do I have to give to, you know, I, I was six months out from boot camp. They were, they were still in boot camp. What, what advice would I give to myself? And that was it. So. Super, super important. Like I said earlier, I really wish that I had taken advantage of this advice earlier. And hopefully by doing this, I can uh, sort of catch up on that. But after someone reads your book, what would be the one thing that you would have them do to accelerate the career? Like what's the action they can take right after finish, right after putting it down? Probably the, the easiest action is to, to, to start writing. I think that writing is a very powerful mechanism uh, for just retention. Even if nobody else reads it, you will read it. And I think that's, that's a powerful thing in the first place. I, and then in terms of what to write about, Definitely, I think the, the, the fastest way to, to sort of get response and get hooked on writing is uh, to pick up what they put down. So that, that, that very concept that you started with, I think, is, is still my top idea <clears throat> for people on what to do. Because a lot of people, when they start, they read the learning public thing, they're very inspired. Uh, I had someone like write a blog post on man pages as their first post. And then they wonder why uh, they're not getting responses and it's like well no one's working on man pages today <laughs> so pick the, work on something active and, and become a part of the conversation the rest of the rest of us are kind of waiting for you to join 
they're not enough. You know, most developers are dark, um, dark matter. And it doesn't take your, it doesn't take a lot to become, to go from dark matter to sort of like a, a star. And I, I guess I'm trying to like knight that in people. Yeah. And especially since, like you said, so many, so few people do it. Yeah. That 98 one, one rule, just if you're able to stick your neck out there and put and subsume your ego, you're going to get so many rewards from doing that. And I really can't think of a better way to, to end it there. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more? I'm on Swix.io. That's my domain. And then I'm mostly active on Twitter, twitter.com slash Swix. And then the book, I've given you a coupon for anyone listening. I like to just like, you know, give rewards for people who made it this far into the podcast to, to listen. So hopefully people can find it from there. Yeah. And thank you so much for that. Like I said before, guys, definitely, definitely go check out his book. It's excellent. Seriously, it's overwhelming how many links that he has in it. You're going to have some reading material for a very, very long time. Just go to learninpublic.org and enter in the code that Sean has so graciously given to us. That's M-L-E-30. Again, learninpublic.org. Swix, thank you so much for joining me. This has been excellent. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Oh, 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 oh,